Good morning, everybody. If, if folks can take their seats. Good morning. And without further ado, our dear friend and teacher, Mr. Goodman. I'd like to start, go right to business, and to start with a text which is very troubling about an event that happens, according to the Bible, 7th century B.C., in Kings 2, it's a story of Josiah. Okay, Kings 2, chapter Chapter 23, verse 21. I'll try to give some background to what's happening here. King Josiah was a king that in his times, they renovated the temple. And obviously, when you do renovations, so things changed, and things that you thought you've lost, you realize that you find. And when they did renovation in the time of King Josiah, what do they find in the heart of the temple? They find a missing book. Now this is a story told in Kings 2, and it's told in Chronicles. A missing book was found. And you have to do renovations, you have to change the structure of the temple in order to find a new book that actually speaks about changing the structure of Judaism. Because when they find this book and they read this book, they realize that there is a gap, a tremendous gap, between the way they live and the way that book says that they need to live. And this book is a book that we believe in expression of God's revelation, God's will. And when they read the missing book, they realize that they're not living the right way. Now that gap creates guilt, but also creates reformation. And they literally reform Judaism. They change Judaism. And they do a lot of things. For example, till that day, it was legitimate to worship God everywhere you are. You worship God. How they used to worship God, religious life used to be very different than our life. How they used to worship God they used to eat with God. That's the, that's the ancient technique of worship, worshiping God. You eat with Him. Every time you eat meat, you offer some of that meat to God. 
And can you imagine if you live in a world where you believe they are sharing your food with God? Can you imagine what intimacy is created when you do that? According to Josiah, now that means that everywhere you are, every time you have a barbecue, you offer some of that to God. According to Josiah, that's not allowed anymore. Only in one place are you allowed to offer sacrifice, to worship God. And that's in the temple, that's in Jerusalem, which effectively means that by not allowing that outside of Jerusalem, you are emptying space from religion. It's a secularization of, of Judaism. The only place where I could worship God is in the temple means if I could only worship God in one place, that probably means that I can't worship God all the time. Creating a secular life. That's what King Josiah does. So it's a very interesting move by King Josiah. And he changes Judaism. And he turns Judaism into something much more similar to what Judaism is today than it was in those biblical times. And he changes it in light of the book that he finds, the missing book, the missing tradition that he restores according to him in that act of reformation of Judaism. And then he does another thing, which is a part of reforming Judaism. I'd like to read something he does from verse 21. The king commands all the people, offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God. Verse 21, We should all now celebrate Passover. And now, verse 22 comes out with what I find a major surprise. This Passover has not been offered, has not been celebrated ever since the time of the judges. Now this is interesting. It turns out not only do we have a missing book, we also have a missing holiday. They didn't celebrate Passover according to this verse ever since the days of the judges. Now imagine that. The days of the judges were between 300 and 400 years. Josiah comes after about 300 years of kings. What does this mean? That for hundreds of years, Passover didn't exist. The people who left Egypt did not celebrate leaving Egypt. Now we like... To, maybe this is one of those halachot that were forgotten when Moses dies. A tradition is missing, and by the way, a missing tradition means by definition that there is no tradition. What makes a tradition a tradition is that there's continuity. That's a very, that's a fundamental Jewish myth. That tradition, there was continuity. That the laws that Moses 
received, he passed on and passed on and passed on. But it seems like that according to the Bible, according to the biblical tradition, there is no tradition. There is a gap of more than 500 years. One of the most major, major festivals of Pesach disappeared and comes back. In the time of Josea, which is only a few decades before the destruction of the first temple and the exile to Babylon, it means that Pesach was renewed. It was forgotten by the generations right after they left Egypt. And it was renewed by the generations right before they left Israel. Now, what does this mean that he renews the Pesach? Now, some would say, and I heard a remark lately, that no, 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 this can't say that. So what does it say? This is like a Talmudic move. It says here in this, in this verse, Lo na'asa ka'pesach hazeh. Mi me'ashoftim. Which means, someone want to read, it's not that Passover vanished. It's this form of Passover was vanished. It's like a Talmudic move. How does a Talmudic move look like? This Passover vanished Passover itself didn't. Now that's an attempt to guard the sense of tradition. <laughs> I think it's interesting, but I also think that even if this Passover vanished, what is this Passover? This Passover is the collective celebration of Passover. That's what Josiah is doing. They never celebrated Passover collectively. Maybe individually. By the way, Leila Seder is a celebration and memory of the collective celebration of Korban Pesach. So we're trying to do a Passover like they always did Passover. There's only one problem with that. They didn't always do Passover. If you want to live... By the way, according to the Pew Report, I think over 80% of American Jews do Passover, right? So it turns out American Jews are more Jewish than biblical Jews. <laughs> they do Passover. Biblical Jews didn't. Say that to the uh, American pessimists concerning to the Pew Report. In the Bible, they didn't do Passover. What do we make from this? I don't know. I just want to point this out. I don't know. Well, I'd like to continue reading. And this year, in the 18th year of Josiah, they renew the Passover. And then, I'm skipping to verse 28. The Yeter Divrei Yoshiyah, on the other events of Josiah, Everything he does is recorded in the books of history of the kings of Judah. Now verse 29. In his days, Paronecho, the king of Egypt, went to war against the king of Assyria. This is one verse that's extremely loaded. What does it say here? In his time, 
the king of Egypt went to war against the king of Assyria. Now you know who's right in the middle between Egypt and Assyria? Israel. Now this is a moment I want to reflect on because biblical geography has, there's a lot of theology there. In the ancient world, there's two great civilizations. And the two great civilizations of the Near East are created on the two great rivers of the Near East. Rivers in the ancient world give birth to civilizations. The Nile gave birth to the kingdom of Egypt. The the Euphrates and the, and the Tigris give birth to Mesopotamian kingdoms. And they both develop a great, strong, sophisticated civilizations. The first writings come from there, from Egypt and Mesopotamia. The first sophisticated forms of law and politics come from there. Sophisticated myths come from there. That's the most advanced form of civilizations come from the two civiliz- come from the civilizations of the rivers. Where does the Tanakh take place? Not within the great civilizations, but right in between those great civilizations. As Jonathan Zacks put it once, the biblical story is not a biblical of one exodus but of two stories of Exodus. It's the double Exodus. It's the story of Abraham leaving Mesopotamia and then his descendants leaving Egypt and both leaving to Canaan. It's a story of the double Exodus and the biblical story is an attempt to create an alternative to both civilizations right in between those civilizations. It's not a synthesis between the two Civilizations is the radical alternative to both civilizations. So geography has a lot of theological significance, but it also has political significance. Because when you're located right between the two great kingdoms of the ancient world, what does that mean? It means you're in trouble. It means you're right, the Cold War between the kingdoms, you're right in between. And any war between Egypt and Assyria, well, you're right there. But the biblical, there's a lapse in history. In the Bible, around in the biblical time, around the 12th century BCE, Egypt was weakened. And only in the 7th century BC, Assyria and Babylon rise. And in that time, there's a gap that enables the space in between to be somewhat independent. And that gap in history of the great war between civilizations is the gap that enabled the Bible to happen. But now it's starting to end. The big, wars, the big war in the time of Josiah starts. But the interesting thing is that Pharaoh is going to attack Assyria from one river to the other river. He's trying, he does everything he can not to crush Israel, Judah, on the way. How does he go there? And it is described more in Chronicles. You leave Egypt towards, try to imagine modern Israel, because modern Israel captures the names of, of ancient Israel. You leave Egypt, you want to go to Assyria, to Syria, Iraq, Mesopotamia. So you leave Egypt, you go through Gaza. <laughs> Not a nice walk. Ashkelon, you with me? Ashdod, on the coast. Rishon Etzion, over there. Tel Aviv, 
nice place to stop for a drink. You continue go, and then you go, you reach a point where you have to take a right, you have to go east. And that location today through Vadi Ali on the galley, that's the way up, the angel way up north. That means you have to go through Megiddo. Were you ever there in Megiddo? The Megiddo Junction? So which means that's the only point we has to somehow move through Israel in order, Judah, in order to get to, to, to Mesopotamia. So right there in Megiddo, where he wants to walk through Judah, who's waiting for him? Josiah and his soldiers. According to Chronicles, he says to him, What are you doing here? I didn't come to fight you. I just want to go through you. What does Josiah do at this critical moment? He makes the mistake of going to war with Pharaoh. And as a result, what happens? Where well, here's the result. And this, this text is very limited in what it, descri- what it describes, but it's enough. It says, V'yamitehu b'megido. He kills Josiah, Josiah dies, and this is what happens in the rest of history. He goes to Babylon, to Assyria, crushes them, comes back, appoints another governor to be the king, Yehoiakim, to, Yehoiakim, to be the king of Judah. He's appointed by Egypt, and as a result, we become a province. We become under the Egyptian control, under Egyptian sovereignty. Which means this is a story, that war is the war, that one of its tragic results was the loss of Jewish sovereignty. King Josiah, the great reformer, is also the king that lost, that, that lost Jewish sovereignty. He did not only reform Judaism, he also brought the end to Judah, to an independent Judah. And I'd like to ask a question. Why would you go to war against Egypt? That would be like... (laughs) I want to be politically correct here. That would be like the state of Israel picking a war with... with China. (laughs) Yeah, let's go to war with China. We could do it. We're strong. We have the Air Force. We could do it. Why would you go to a war with the greatest empire of the ancient world? Why would you do that? And, of course, when you go to irrational politics, where you don't assess your power correctly, when you go to a war with an empire that's much stronger than you, big surprise. What happens? You lose, and you don't only lose, not only that your king dies, you lose your independence. This is the king that brought us back to Egypt. How does he bring us back to Egypt? By bringing Egypt back to us. Egyptian sovereignty over us. Now, why do you do that? And I'd like to ask a question. A devastating question. Is it a coincidence that the same king that revived Passover is the king that went to an irrational war with Egypt? (laughs) Is it a coincidence that the king that starts celebrating our great victory over Egypt is the king that went to an irrational war against Egypt? Or is the horrible irony here 
that the king that nationally started the celebration of Yetziat Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt, he is the king that brought us back to Egypt. I'd like to ask this question. What's the connection between the two pieces? Anyone want to offer something? Please. That's right. So, uh, why now I'm asking the question? But, but no, but, but I'll, I'll make room for questions and discussions and words again, if that's okay. But I want to take what you said very seriously. I think Josiah takes, it's a moment where you take history too seriously. We have a memory of tremendous victory, of a great success. Tapping into that memory could turn you to... That's hubris. Well, you think that success is not something that happened to you. You think it's something that you are. We can, so tapping in to moments of power and victory and success could create irrational politics. It could do that. But maybe something else is going on here. Yes. Okay, so he's trying to preempt attack. It's a preempt attack. He's trying. It's possible. It's possible. It's very nice. You're trying to um, guard him from our judgments, King Josiah. It's right. But again, according to the Book of Chronicles, the king of Pharaoh tells him, "Listen, I have no." business with you. I want to go through you, not to conquer you. And the war that wasn't supposed to happen, King Josiah made happen. That's right. Well, maybe... That's right. Well, it's nice you're guarding the image of King Josiah. Yes. Wow, wow, very interesting. Are you a Tanakh? Very interesting. Maybe religious, radical, when you become radical religiously, you might become radical politically. When you think about religious, you're very bold religiously, you might also become too bold politically. Very interesting. Yes? Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay, great. Now, this is a very important question. Because we are celebrating Hanukkah in like two days, right? Now, Hanukkah is about us as a nation reminding ourselves of the great miracles that happened to our nation. And here's the question that you're asking. Thank you, Rabbi. Here's the question. Maybe it's not healthy to remind yourselves of miracles that happened to you in the past. Maybe when you tap into memory of miracles, it creates irrational politics because you start expecting that miracles will happen again. Maybe Hanukkah 
Pesach, all these moments where we remember miraculous events happening to us create distorted politics. Now, Josiah, remembering Passover, goes to a war against Egypt. I want to remember Passover, the great moment of Passover, and just to read a very a beautiful verse from, from Exodus 13. Mystery is something we all know, but I want to taste the flavor of Exodus. I think it's something that only I have, because I'm the one with the full Bible. Exodus, I mean, just one verse from Exodus 14, verse, verse 10. The people of Israel raise their eyes and they see the Egyptians coming right at them. And where are they now? They're right in front of the sea. So the sea's in front of you and the Egyptians are coming right at you. It's a situation that seems impossible. And it seems impossible because it is impossible. And now at this moment, what do they do? The Egyptians are coming, the ocean is here. What do they do when they're right in the middle? What do they do? They complain. After all, they are, <laughs> we kind of share the same genes. And they go to Moses and they say, There is enough graves in Egypt. It's a cynicism, national cynicism. There is enough graves. It's not, it's not like you had missing graves in Egypt. You had to take us to die in the desert. Why did he take us out of Egypt? And then they say, That is the very thing we told you in Egypt. You know the kind of people that in the middle of an argument remind you of the last argument? <laughs> we already told you in Egypt that this is a bad idea. Back in Egypt we told you We'd rather stay in Egypt than die in the desert. And now in this argument, they're quoting the last argument, telling Moses, why? Which is, by the way, when you're in real trouble, complaining about it is very effective. Like, now they're trying to sell the score with Moses. Now Moses says to them, okay, be quiet, be quiet. And then this is his answer. Don't be afraid. You just wait and watch God's redemption. God will fight for you and instead of you and all you have to do is rest and watch. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great way? Now when this is your model of dealing with problems, is this an inspiring text? When Josea taps into this memory, the moment where God is with you, Therefore, everything is okay. That means that anything that seems impossible is possible. Anything that seems irrational could actually happen. When this is your national memory, this is a memory in order to make create rational, healthy politics. Do you have to disconnect yourself from this memory? Or connect yourself to this memory? King Josiah connects himself nationally to this memory of miracles, of having the impossible happen, and goes to war with Egypt, and guess what? The impossible 
didn't happen. Creating the scary paradox that the king that celebrated Exodus leaving Egypt, he's the one that brought us back to Egypt. Interestingly enough, this memory of this miracle that educates you that everything is possible and anything could happen was a paralyzing miracle throughout the Galut, throughout the years in exile. One of the explanations that Zionists offer to Galut passivity, why Jews in the exile never took initiative, never tried to redeem themselves, never tried to return to Zion and regain their lost independence. It's because of this story. What was the national myth? Who will redeem us? God. The story of Exodus creates a waiting mentality. You have to wait. God will intervene in history for you and instead of you because according to tradition, the story of Exodus is not only the model for that redemption, it's also the model for future redemption. And if that's your model, that, cre that creates the passive mentality of hundreds of years of Galut. That's why Zionists said our only way out of Galut is out of these stories. Our only way to, to activate our nation is to stop believing that God will intervene and therefore let us start intervening and changing our own history. But I would say the same stories that create passive politics of Galut also create overactive politics of Josiah. Because if you think, oh, I could go with war with Egypt, it's okay, because God's going to intervene. The same myth that makes you too passive could make you irrationally active. Why do you think some Israelis believe that we could do whatever we want on Temple Mount? Whatever we want. And the world is not going to like it, and the Arab world is going to explode, but it's okay. Everything will be okay. Why? Because God is with us and God is going to save us. The same mentality that creates galut passivity creates hyper-Zionist activity. It's the same myth, the myth that the miracles that happen will happen. The God was with us, then He'll be with us now. It could create the passivity of galut. And it could create the active hyper-Zionism that we saw in the action of Josiah and we see today in some parts of Israeli society. So what's the conclusion from all this? Let's not celebrate Passover anymore. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Isn't that a great way to end a sermon? <laughs> Maybe I should end here. <laughs> I like to think about okay, so we so this is one model of how to deal with a history of radical success, of miracles. And by the way, where I said about Passover, the saying about Hanukkah. Hanukkah could create either Galut passivity or hyper Zionism, we could do whatever. Because God believing that God is with you 
is a belief that could also distort something inside you. So is the only alternative secularization, that's what moderate Zionists think, the only way to create rational politics where you realize you're on your own, own. so on the one hand it means you have to be active, but on the other hand you realize the boundaries of what you can achieve when you're active is the only way to to reach that historic balance is to strip myself from the memory of miracles? Is that the only alternative? This is what the founding fathers of Zionism thought. You know how they th- they sing Hanukkah songs in Israel? They literally sing, I'm a great singer. Yeah. They sing, we literally sing, my girl in kindergarten, a miracle didn't happen. Pach the um, we didn't find, and that's not true. Like, how do you celebrate Hanukkah? By celebrating and singing. Hanukkah didn't happen. That's the celebration. <laughs> it's no, it's, it's human, it's the Maccabees, it's not God. It's me and my little Gvurot Israel. It's the heroism of Israel, not of the God of Israel. It's realizing it's the denial of the miracle of Hanukkah. That is the celebration of Hanukkah. And one would say, isn't that a healthier way of tapping into memory of miracles, denying that there ever were any miracles? Doesn't that take us out of irrational Galut politics and irrational hyper-Zionist politics? Knowing that it's up to you, but also knowing that you are limited? What I'd like to do now is to offer an alternative model to the model of Josiah. Maybe there's another way to tap in to our national memory, to the memory of success, of victory, and of miracles. And I think the person that offers the alternative to Josiah is Moses. If Josiah brought us back to Egypt, Moses is the one who led us out of Egypt, and I think he offers an alternative model of how to build a healthy relationship with our miraculous memories. And maybe the Moses model could also help us think about the Hanukkah model. Moses, the way the Bible builds Moses is we have two stories of Moses. The story described in Exodus, Leviticus, and Bamidbal, Numbers, and Numbers, where Moses is in the center of that story. He is the hero of that story. And then there is his sermon, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Dvarim, where there he is the teller of that story. He has two roles in the Bible. He's a hero of the story, and then he's a storyteller of that same story. Now, we know the model that sometimes people that are the heroes of historic events want to become the historian of those events. A good example would be Winston Churchill, we decided I'm not only going to be the hero of World War II, I'll also be the historian of World War II. Another, another great example is David Ben-Gurion. We are to hear the story of, of the birth of Jewish sovereignty, and then he tries to tell the story. He's a historian of that story. And usually, I don't want to sound be too cynical, but why do people that are hero, the heroes of the story want to be the historians of that story? Because sometimes, I'm not saying, I don't want to say anything bad about Churchill or Ben-Gurion. But if you read the way they describe history, you realize that they didn't only create history, they also did everything they could that we'll all know 
that it was them that created history. They all, they, they, meaning they didn't only want to change the future, they also wanted to change the past, the way we remember the past. And Moses, he is in the heart of the story of Exodus, in the book of Exodus, and then he tells you that story in the book of Deuteronomy. Now he's the historian. But the interesting thing is that when Moses retells the story in his last speech, he is not a part of that story. Moses, when Moses tells the story about Moses, he doesn't say anything about Moses. It's God that took you out of Egypt. It's God that walked you through the desert. Some of you must have noticed that in the Haggadah Shur Pesach, in the Passover Haggadah, Moshe is not there. Well, I think it's not the Haggadah of Passover. It wasn't the first text to take Moshe out of the story. The first to take Moshe out of the story was Moshe himself. Now, Moshe retelling the story, he does not only retelling the story, he's also retelling the law. And by retelling the law, I think he is telling us a lot about how to deal with the story of Exodus, creating an alternative to the Josiah Galut hyper-Zionism model. And I'd like to listen to the way Moshe does that in light of the way he reframes two laws that we had before him. One is the law of slavery. Okay, you have, what we have here in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12. The law that regulates your relationship with your slave. This is in the world where people were divided into two. People that were slaves or people that had slaves. That, that was that world. This is, in this, okay. Now here in Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, he's repeating a law that he already said in Exodus 21. Now Exodus 21 is the first verse of Parashat Mishpatim. And I want to just put this in context. After the Ten Commandments, after the nation as a nation heard God's revelation to that nation, delivering the Ten Commandments... The reason why God didn't move to the 11th commandment, you know why? He was going to. He was on a roll. He was going to move to the 11th commandment and the 12th commandment. But why did he stop? Because the people told him to stop. 
They were terrified. They said, we can't listen to you anymore. It was too terrifying. And then they asked Moshe, you listen to God instead of us and for us, and you tell us what He told you. So there's two forms of revelation. The direct revelation, and then the revelation mediated by Moshe. And Parashat Mishpatim is when it begins, when we move from the divine commandments to Moshe telling the people, in his words, God's commandments. And this is the first commandment. The first commandment that Moshe says in his own words is, if you have a Hebrew slave after six years, in the seventh year, you have to let him free. Now here's a question I want to ask. This is the first commandment after the Ten Commandments. And there might be an interesting parallel between the first commandment after the Ten Commandments and the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. What was the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God, Anochi Hashem Eloecha, Asher Otseeticha Me'eret Mitzrayim Ibet Avadim. I am the God that liberated you from Egypt. You, this is how the commandments begin, with your introduction. Hi, I'm God, I liberated you. That's an introduction, a powerful introduction, by the way. You used to be a slave, right? I liberated you. The, the book of Kuzari starts with the question, why didn't God introduce himself as the God that created the cosmos? He didn't. Because what's relevant to these people? Not what he did to nature, but what he did to them. Uh, you used to be a slave. I liberated you. Knowing that and being aware of that is the first commandment. What's the first commandment that's after the commandments? You are commanded to liberate your slaves. Is there a connection here between the two? The first commandment is God saying, you were a slave that was liberated, and the first commandment is you were commanded to liberate. Am I commanded to do to others what God did to me? I was liberated, therefore I have to liberate. Is it too loose or is this actually there in the text? Is this a midrash or pshat? Is this me making a connection that's not there? Or is it really there? Is the first commandment trying to turn, that Moses trying to use the first commandment of God saying, you were liberated, therefore you should liberate? I don't know. Is it there or is it me just seeing things? And Israel people think that when I read it, that I just see things. <laughs> no, he's just saying that. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. It's a question when you read a text. Is it my connection or is it intentional in the text? It's a big question. But if in Exodus it's not clear, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's very clear. In the book of Deuteronomy, this is how Moses repeats that law. If we have a Hebrew slave, by the way, what's very interesting that your slaves are called your brothers. He's your brother. That wasn't there in Exodus. This is Moshe adding in Deuteronomy. 
He's your brother. By the way, Moshe in Deuteronomy also calls the king your brother. The language of brotherhood is powerful language. What does it do? I mean, you'd expect a different metaphor to describe your king, right? What is your king? He's the father. But in the Bible, he's your brother because it's a metaphor that cracks a sense of hierarchy and creates a strong sense of equality. By the way, Israelis are very good in using this metaphor. Israelis are very good in using the metaphor, my brother, to crack, to erode a sense of hierarchy. A, a, a soldier in the Israeli army could call his commander, Achi, my brother. And the reason why he does that is because he wants everyone to know that there isn't really distance here. There isn't a hierarchy. We're all the same. You know, Naftali Bennett, he overused this metaphor in his campaign. How did he call his, his, the, the voters? He said, Achi, vote for me. <laughs> My brother. This is very Israeli, but it's also very biblical. Your slave is your brother. Your king is your brother. Hierarchy is something social, but it's not metaphysical. In the real life, in front of God, we're all brothers, not slaves, masters, and kings. And he continues, Will you let him free? When you let him free, don't let him empty-handed. You have to give him gifts when you let him free. And then it says why. Why are you supposed to let your slave free? And in verse 15, it's like, You should remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And God liberated you. That is why I am commanding you this commandment today. What is a possible interpretation of Exodus is a clear declaration in Deuteronomy. The reason why we are commanded to let our slaves free is because we were slaves and we were someone let us free. This is an alternative way to think about memory. What do we do with the story of Exodus? According to Josiah, the great miracle happened and we should expect that it will happen again. But according to Moses, how does Moses treat Exodus? We're not waiting for the return of Exodus. According to Moses, what do we do? Yeah, it's about... It's not about waiting for it to happen. It's not, but not about waiting for God. It's about becoming like God. Not God the miracle maker. God the liberator. That's what the story is about. The story about you were liberated... And the way I make that story alive in my life is by liberating others. That's the connection with the miracle and the past. I kind of ran out of time, but in Shabbat, he, Moshe does the same move. Why are we commanded to... Shabbat is about letting your slaves go. Shabbat, according to Deuteronomy... It says, Six days you're in control of your slaves, and then one day you lose control. That's what Shabbat is about. According to Deuteronomy, not Exodus, Shabbat is not a day of resting, it's a day of not controlling. 
That's what Shabbat is about. It's a day of losing control. I think that's why we drink wine on Shabbat. <laughs> it's a day of not controlling, not being in control. That's what Shabbat is about. And what's the model of Shabbat according to Deuteronomy? God let you free. Back in Egypt, you should let your slaves free every, every once a week for an entire day. This is how it works. Once a week, you let your slaves free for one day. And after six years, you let them free forever. Why? For the same reason. You were liberated, therefore you should liberate others. This is an interesting way of thinking of imitatio Dei, of imitating God, of being like God. According to biblical tradition, being like God is a sin. That's the sin of the people in the Garden of Eden because the classic fantasy of being like God as articulated by Nietzsche is being like God, is being powerful and being in control. The fantasy of control is the fantasy is what Nietzsche calls God envy. We want to be in control. According to Moses, being like God is not being in control. It's being strong enough to lose control, to let go to let someone else free. That's his alternative to Josiah. According to Josiah, Exodus is going to happen. According to Moses, you should make Exodus happen. It's not about waiting for divine intervention and liberation. It's about becoming a liberator. I think this is the alternative that Moses is presenting, the alternative to the Josiah model. What do we do with memories? What, we do, what, what do we? And this is, I think, a very a broader question. We all have to deal with the fact that, and this is, you know, very, you know, modern, modern way of thinking of human psyche, is that we all have powerful memories of a time where we were powerless. We all do, not as a nation, but as individuals. Those are the memories we have from the very beginning of our life. We were powerless. And some say that those memories continue with us for our whole life. And dealing with the memory of being powerless is part of, part of dealing with life. But the memory of being powerless comes in a package with the memory of having someone very powerful, not only controlling you, deciding for you, guarding you, looking out for you. And the classic critique of Freud on religion is also the following. What is religion about? It's about human beings not being willing to mature. When you realize that your parents are not there anymore for you, so what do you do? And you still have that need cultivated from, from day one. Having someone stronger than us, bigger than us, deciding for us, controlling us, and looking after us. So who now, who inherits your parents? The, the parent. Avinu Malkeinu, the cosmic parent. That looks after you. And according to the Freudian critique, what life is about is maturing. And maturing means maturing out of religion. Accepting the fact that we're alone. And we're responsible and all that. But I think Moses is offering an alternative here. I think all the great scholars and theologians of Jewish history always offered the alternative to Freud 
I mean, without really knowing Freud. And that greatness, religious greatness, is not about maturing out of religion, but it's about maturing your religion. So having a mature religion. I'll just be a little bit judgmental now. The Josiah religion is immature. God is going to take care of us. We can do whatever we want. He's going to take care of us. The Moshe model is not about God watching us, guarding us, taking care of us. It's about us seeing God as a role model. It's us being like God, not by performing miracles, but by overcoming our need for control and liberating others. And Moshe's model is an alternative to Josiah's model, and it's a question, what do we do with our national, with Hanukkah? Does Hanukkah create, oh, many memories will come back? Or Hanukkah was, wow, the Jews were liberated back then. We should enable liberation around the world today. What is Hanukkah about? Is it about waiting for that to happen? Or seeing your role in life as making that happen? Is it about, is it about creating a dependence on the parents you don't really have anymore? Or is that becoming the parents that you used to have? Watched over you, guarded you, take care of you. Now it's your duty to do that to others. What is it about? And I think the Moshe model is, a, I think, a more powerful model than the Freudian model. It's not about and the Zionist model, that the only way out of the disturbing and destructive effect of, of miracles on our psyche is to strip our memory from miracles, to strip our memory from these national, from, from these national great events. Maybe, Moshe is offering, instead of shaking off these memories, to offer an alternative connection to those memories. Okay. Okay. You know, like, uh, want to take a few questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few, uh, few questions? Yes. A uh, microphone. Yes. Okay. Uh, questions? Um, I thought I stopped going to talk to uh, instead of freeing the slaves once every uh, six or seven years, why are you supposed to have slaves at all? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. In the, in the ancient, that's how the structure of the ancient world was. And one would say, it's like the reading of the Rav Kook, that metaphysically speaking, according to the Bible, you're not supposed to have any slaves, but socially speaking, everyone had slaves. So what they do is they, the, the Bible educates you not to have slaves through these mitzvot, meaning at your best, you're without slaves, maybe one day you'll be all the time at your best. Uh, last question, and then uh, our guest master. Sort of a comment and a question. One of the, the principles of psychology that I live by is not letting my memories have me that being responsible for my reauthorization of my memories. Great. Does that make sense? Great. That's a great way of packaging the, the Moses model. The problem with that in psychology is that some of those memories are unconscious <laughs> and have to be unearthed in order to be responsible for them. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Mr. Uh, 
in the famous language of Philip to the person who wanted to learn, say Ulamad, continue to learn, and we'll continue this dialogue in the holy city of Jerusalem, and you are all welcome. Uh, Thank you.